Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hello, I'm Freddie Sayers and this is Unheard. Back in March, everyone's world suddenly changed. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. So on day one of lockdown, we launched Lockdown TV, a place where we could gather experts, scientists, writers, politicians, thinkers, to try to help us understand what was going on in this strange moment and what kind of world we were going to get at the end of it. And now, due to popular demand, here we are in podcast form. Welcome to Lockdown TV. Professor Susan Mickey is one of the leading proponents here in the UK of an activist policy in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, She sits on the all-important SAGE committee that uh, advises the government. Um, She is a psychologist by training and director of the Centre for Behaviour Change at University College London. Hello, Susan. Hello, and I should say that I'm speaking in my personal capacity. Quite right. Uh, Thank you for uh, sharing the time and talking to us today. Pleasure. So let's start with a little brouhaha that happened last week. Uh, You were asked whether uh, some policies like masks and social distancing should remain for a long time, and you said you thought perhaps they should remain forever. What did you mean? I actually used four words, and only one of them was reported. The four words I used were forever to some extent. Um, Now, what I mean by this is that sadly, this isn't going to be the last pandemic. I was also on uh, SAGE in 2009 in uh, our last pandemic, the H1N1 pandemic. And um, for as long as humans are around, viruses are going to be around and they're clever. Um, So I think the issue is what have we learned? Um, what can we do differently as a society that means that um, when inevitable outbreaks occur, um, when there's a new viral threat, that we can behave in such a way as to minimise the chance of a pandemic happening at all, um, or if it does happen, of making it as short um, and least destructive as possible. and. My own field is um, my own area of expertise and interest is behaviour. And uh, in fact, I led on a uh, paper for SAGE on maintaining behaviours in the long term, which hasn't yet been published. Um, And 
there are things that we can do that will minimize not only the chance of um, getting infected by this kind of virus, but all viruses in the long term. So what would that, um, what would that mean? So the next pandemic comes along, COVID-22, God forbid, but what would you like to see happen then? Well, what I'm talking about is really population-wide cultural shifts in um, certain behaviours and certain lifestyles. When I was a child, um, myself, everybody I knew, we always washed our hands before we sat down to eat. Sadly, my children and my grandchildren do not do this anymore. Um, but just as you can lose population-wide behaviours, so you can gain them. And people in other countries do still do that. Um, so that's an example. Uh, we also know in other societies, I went on a work visit to Japan um, several years ago, and I was amazed at the fact that they were so frequently wearing masks. I really didn't understand it. And I was you know, asking about it. And from their point of view, they just regard it as um, good manners, um, you know, to wear masks if they're in enclosed spaces or if somebody's got a cough or if they've got a um, sniffle. But generally, they wear them. Now, I'm not saying that we should all adopt that. Um, but what I was saying is I think it's a good idea to keep these behaviours that we can turn on or off as needed. And social so distancing, would you would include in that list? I don't think anybody has enjoyed the experiences of commuting where you're crowded together with other people in, in public transport, for example. I think it would be a really good idea if we could redesign cities, redesign transport in such a way that there wasn't so much crowding in indoor spaces. Um, so that's the kind of thing I'm thinking about is just taking, you know, the miserable almost 18 months now that we've been through and thinking about, you know, none of us ever want to go through another lockdown. You know, how can we best prevent us being in that situation again? And, um, you know, what I suppose the message is, is that if at a population wide level, we can all do some things differently. For example, in the States, I notice when they cough, there's a really common uh, way of coughing. And also, I think in the Netherlands, I've seen it where people cough <laughs> into the crook of their elbow much better than coughing or sneezing onto your hands that you then touch other surfaces, people touch, etc. So there's these small things that when I say we could do them to some extent forever, some of them we could just routinely do those sort of things. Others, they should be in our repertoire so we can switch them on if we have to. I guess what's interesting about some of those things you mentioned is that for some people, they don't feel like a big deal. You know, if you wear masks, some people don't mind that. Uh, and what you describe as social distancing, you know, might sound okay to some people. There's a, another group in society for whom that sounds really, really frightening. Um, and like a, a major societal shift that they didn't vote for and they don't want. I mean, some people really don't like looking around and not being able to see people's faces and their children can't see people smiling and that kind of thing. So it really, really frightens people to talk about that kind of societal change. Yeah, I don't think anybody would have a problem with being less crowded on tubes at rush hour, to be honest. I think the issue is masks. I think, you know, and what I realised from that comment was it's a real trigger for people. And I completely agree. I hate wearing masks. You know, I really hate it. Um, and I think 
most people do. Um, although interestingly, again in Japan, you know, people say they actively like it. And I talked to one woman whose mother sleeps at night with a mask on because she feels more reassured by having a mask on. So they associate it with health and not getting ill. So it's a very different cultural kind of way of thinking about it. So, but do you think we should be changing our culture then to be more? We, we are where we are. Um, I hope we don't have to wear face masks. Um, but I think that if we are in a situation like we are at the moment, you know, where actually we're on a bit of a knife edge, we could go either way. You know, we can either, hopefully the vaccination rollout will be good and quick enough to um, not allow the Delta variant to get away, or it won't. Um, and in this sort of situation where there's a threat, I think for people to wear masks in enclosed indoor spaces, when we know it's um, transmitted by aerosol, is really sensible. Um, so when I was saying people could get used to when they leave the house checking, you know, do they have not only their keys and their phone, but also tissues? Again, when we were young, we always had tissues in our pocket. Hardly happens now. Um, and if there's a, a potential threat around, if, if there looks like we're on the cusp of getting some kind of um, epidemic or pandemic, yeah, put, put, put the mask in your pocket in case you need to use it. I'm really keen to get on to this question of where we are now and, and how, we, how we get out of it. But just to finish on this question, I mean, you use the phrase like population-wide cultural shifts and behavioural shifts. I think that might also be triggering for people, but in a way, the kind of central, what some people call conspiracy and other people just call fear, is that somehow this pandemic is being used as a way to change our society. And what you're saying really is, is that you, you would recommend that, that, that we should have new norms and that you think it should be a, a, a chance to change our society. So in a sense, they're right to be anxious. <laughs> um, I don't think I'm saying should. I'm, I think what I'm doing is raising um, questions about what people might want to do in the future. Um, I don't think anybody has enjoyed these lockdowns. And I think it's a trade-off, isn't it? I do think that there should have been um, much more consultation with people right from the beginning um, to find out what, what kind of trade-offs people would like. Um, but... Going back to the thing about wanting to change, you know, population-wide behaviour, these are kind of health and safety issues. Um, I remember, I think you're probably too young to remember, I remember when there was an incredible furore um, about people wearing seatbelts, you know, that this was going to create more damage, that this was an infringement on individual liberties. It was passionate, you know, as passionate as uh, you know, the, some of the face mask uh, discourse has been. Do you come across people now who object to wearing seatbelts? No, it's been adopted as an everyday um, kind of safe thing that everybody... There is kind of a, a category difference though, isn't there, between what you do when you're in the privacy of your own car to secure yourself versus suddenly you know, not seeing people's faces anymore as you walk around. It's much, it, it has a cultural impact whilst seatbelts doesn't. I, I completely agree. And, and I think that I don't think we will change um, to be like Japan and some of the Far East countries. But the reason that they are different is that they have had SARS, they have had many more threatening um, epidemics and pandemics. 
with much more potentially serious consequences in terms of lethality. So there's a reason um, for that. Um, I think that, I, I, as I said, I think the key thing is for people to be engaged in a discussion about options and for people to be informed about choices. Um, you know, all I can do is um, if there is a goal for things, you know, for people to change their behavior, to think about how to make that easier for people, if that's what they want. It's not up to me to say, you know, how things should be in the future. That's, you know, a societal issue. Do you think that's maybe at the core of why this has become such a heated controversy, that you're there as, a, as an expert providing advice on, you know, health and medical matters to the government, you, what you might be fine with, for example, more mask wearing and social distancing, yeah. other parts of the population might not be. So you're almost being brought into a political role. A, 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 you're, you're, you're having more influence than maybe you signed up for. Um, I think it's really important that your listeners understand what the role is on SAGE, uh, Scientific Advisory Group in Emergencies, and the behavioural group that I'm part of. Um, we don't determine policy. We don't even advise on policy. We are posed questions and then we provide the scientific evidence and thinking in answer to those questions. It's up to the policymakers and politicians what they decide. But one of the things that you will see, anybody who cares to go onto the government website and look at probably more than 50 papers that we've published um, over the last year, we'll see that um, many, many of our papers really emphasize this issue about engaging communities, respecting communities, listening to communities, and also about understanding individual differences. So you have such a range of people on all these issues as to what makes them comfortable or uncomfortable, what they think other people should or should not do. And absolutely crucial that these people are all engaged in conversations about it and that differences between individuals, differences between social and cultural groups all get respected and understood. Let's get into today then, um, Professor. We've got an announcement from the Prime Minister at 6pm. It's widely expected, I would say dead cert, from the briefings that he's going to delay the end of lockdown on the 21st by at least four more weeks. Is he making the right decision? Um, I don't think there's really any alternative other than delaying for four weeks and seeing what's happening. Um, it's a very tricky situation. I don't, I don't envy anybody who has to take um, decisions in this situation because you've got different things going in different directions. You know, we have got these vaccine rollout that's going very well. Uh, very good take up. There are pockets um, where where the take up is less good, but generally it's going very well. But you know, it can only go as fast as it can go. Meanwhile, we have this Delta variant that is up to sixty percent more um, transmissible than the previous variant, uh, which is huge. Um, and we've seen steady, quite alarming increases in transmission rates over the last few weeks. Now we're beginning to see the predictable increase in hospitalization. In that situation, the, you, you can't um, you know, 
lift restrictions without sending it into a kind of exponential spin upwards. So, yeah, I think he, he is right. I think the question is, is it going to be sufficient? Is that a hint that you think it's going to be longer than four weeks in reality? I mean, some people have been saying that if the models are right, cases will be much higher in four weeks' time than they are today. And it seems politically hard to see how they're going to suddenly end all restrictions at that point. Well, the Prime Minister very wisely said several weeks ago, um, we need to look at data, not dates. And I think he's absolutely right. And I think he and the government and everybody should really heed that advice and really think we can't predict there's too many uncertainties in which way this kind of race between the vaccine and the variant may go. So I think four weeks, then review it and and see where we are. That's all. Do you have a sense, having looked at the data, of whether you think it's likely that four weeks will be enough or do you suspect more might be needed? I don't I don't have a sense. But when I said the question is, does more need to be done? It wasn't more in terms of length of time. It was more in terms of right now. Um, so there's a lot more we could be doing that would reduce transmission right now. And it's not being done. And that's frustrating. Such so as. such as um, ensuring that for example, schools, which is where we're seeing the biggest rise in transmission at the moment, um, has good ventilation, um, that that school children, secondary school children do what they were doing previously, which is to wear face masks in enclosed indoor spaces, um, to uh, ensure that there's very small bubbles um, within schools. And more generally, um, now that we know aerosol transmission, is so important um, that all shared public spaces, um, you know, hospitality venues, uh, for example, um, have got good ventilation. In Belgium, they are instituting carbon monoxide monitors so they can monitor as a proxy for how good the ventilation is. So that's something we could be doing right now, um, have standards, have inspections, you know, more regulation about having well ventilated indoor spaces. Just to pick up on the school's point. So it's another one of those examples, isn't it, where, you know, it's it's not a zero cost move, because it's extremely uncomfortable and difficult for children to wear masks all day sitting in class. You talk about smaller bubbles, it means they can't play with their friends, it means that it's a it's a material change to their whole experience. Um, And during previous times when we had those restrictions, we saw numbers coming up anyway. So, you know, some people on the ground who are watching kids playing and fiddling with masks and they're not wearing them properly anyway, sort of think that's a lot of bother for maybe not very much result. You always have to look at the counterfactual. At the moment, we have got thousands of children at home isolating because somebody, you know, in the school has or in their bubble or whatever, Um, has tested positive. Um, Many of those children haven't been given digital access um, or laptops to to continue their education. Children are really suffering. If you're at home, you don't have any contact with your friends. Plus, your parents have to stay at home and look after you, or one of them. Um, You know, that then raises real issues in terms of, you know, productivity or people being concerned about losing their jobs. So there's knock-on effects. And there's no, none of this is the perfect answer. 
you know, whatever way you go, there are going to be negative negative aspects to it. And yes, you're right to draw attention to it. But then you have to look at if you don't do that, what's the alternative? Well, so what about borders, it, Professor Mickey, if I can borders, bring you on to yep. that? Is that something else you want to see dramatic different action on than we're seeing at the moment? I will say something on borders. And then there's something else which actually is the most important thing. Maybe you'll ask me about it. Um, borders has been um, there have been criticisms about us being much too late coming to um, really having robust systems at borders in terms of people coming in. Um, there are currently criticisms about um, the you know, tiers of red, amber, green. Um, Would you join the, those? I mean, you're, are you, do you feel that they are inadequate? I think if we'd had better border controls, we wouldn't have um, the Delta variant doing what it's doing at the moment. You know, those we were far too late um, to really restrict uh, travel. But at this point, though, it's in many, if not most, European countries, albeit less than ours. So it might seem odd to suddenly really end all travel to those countries because we've got higher infection rates and more of the Delta variant than they do. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I, I, don't, I don't know any country who's, who's stopped all travel. I think, you know, there's travel for work, there's travel for um, family reasons, etc. Um, I think the... Uh, having a policy of encouraging people to holiday at home is a, is a good idea. Um, and one of the problems about the red, orange, red, amber, green is that people um, often come through third countries. And so they might have come from um, a green, but gone through a, 
amber or red. And the other issue is, it's not just about the country people have come from. If they've been in a, a large tourist resort, they'll be mixing with people from lots of other countries. There's also getting to the airport, being in the airport and the plane. Often people aren't segregated. So if, if you want to try and reduce transmission of problematic variants between people, that's an obvious So just, just so I understand, that, is it the, the international travel worry, is that about the Delta variant? Or is that to try and avoid the importation of any other variants we don't yet know about? Um, <laughs> the more transmission there is, the higher rates of transmission, the more mutations there are as the virus goes from one person to another. The more mutations, the more likely there are to be variants. The more variants, the more likely they are to be of concern and more transmissible. So um, keeping transmission levels at a really low level is what's needed if you don't want to produce your own new variants. And, and we obviously produced a variant um, that was that is now called the alpha variant um, last year. Um, there's, so there's that issue, but there's also an issue about a two-way thing, about we shouldn't be happy to be um, transporting our variant across the world it's and partly to also, protect other countries then yeah exactly exactly um and also we've seen to our cost what happens when we don't um have more robust border controls ourselves the point that people will raise in response to that is there will always be other variants and the end point of having you know minimal circulation of covid19 across the whole world is at this point quite far away so the logical deduction of what you're saying is that if we impose those kind of travel restrictions you're suggesting, they're there also for the long term, or you might say forever. No, I wouldn't say that. I would say that that is when we are facing a very serious threat, which we are at the moment, um, where you know hundreds or thousands of people may lose their lives at worst case scenario. Um, and in that situation, one wants to think about what are all the things that can be done um, to prevent that and to prevent this virus running away again as it did before Christmas and prevent having any other very serious restrictions. So you wouldn't That's see the them, you wouldn't see tighter travel restrictions as part of a long term shift? I think the whole, it's very difficult to know how it's going to go. What I do hope is that the whole, this brings countries together more. And there's a more global way of looking at travel, because actually um, there's an existential crisis around the corner, which is much greater than pandemics. And that's the climate crisis. Um, and, you know, air travel is one of the big contributors um, to global warming and the kind of problems we've already been been seeing. So do you want to see so just on, on that? It one good reason, in your view, to have less international travel is that it also helps the global warming question. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm an academic and myself and other people have been in situations where we're flown all over the world to give a keynote lecture and then we fly back again you know, to the States, to Australia, to wherever. Um, also, academics have meetings where we fly all around the world. We don't need to. 
you know, we found out that a lot of what we've been doing by flying around the world, we can do, as you and I are doing now, have a conversation over Zoom. Won't, won't now, you miss meeting your colleagues in other universities some, in this new future? <laughs> there are certain things where, you, you know, Zoom is no substitute. So conferences, academic conferences, I organise uh, our own one and I attend others that are on Zoom. It's not the same because actually the important thing about academic conferences is talking to people over lunch, over drink in the evening. That's when you get a lot of the really interesting I new ideas and new collaborations formed. And that's true for everyone. I mean, we are social animals. We love being with each other. And so, so we should. Um, but all I'm saying is that not all of the travel is like that. I say in the academic world, at least two thirds could be replaced um, with, with uh, yeah, this sort of interaction. So you asked me about um, what we could be doing um, to reduce the current problems. And we've, we've talked about um, changing the way we do things, our kind of behavior. We've talked about uh, border controls. I've talked about making safe places, which I think is big. But there's another one, which is an absolute cornerstone of pandemic control, which is what other countries who are now leading relatively normal lives did extremely well. And that is a test, trace and isolate system. And we in this country have done really badly. We've poured, I think it's 38 billion or so, a huge amount of money into this, um, but not into um, ways in which we know it works which is run by local public health um, organizations who know their local communities, who are trusted by their communities. So we have a situation still after all this time where tests take too long, where there aren't traces on the ground as there are in other countries, even relatively poorer countries. You know, people going round door to door, finding out who, who's been in touch with who, et cetera, and people aren't isolating. You know, only our own research data shows that only about half people, even when they have symptoms of COVID, don't isolate at home for a whole variety of reasons. But this is a failed system. And if we want to be serious about controlling the pandemic, we need to sort that out. What would you say to the response that if you cast your mind 12 months ago during the first summer of COVID, Test, trace and isolate was all anyone was talking about. We were envious of the German system. Everyone thought they had designed it so well. All across Europe, people were pouring money into test, trace and isolate. And to my knowledge, there's not a single country across Europe where that was effective enough to dampen or prevent the second wave that then just spread all the way across Europe. What's that evidence point telling us about that? Yeah, I, I don't know about the European, what the Europe, different European countries have been doing. Um, but the countries that have done it really well are those, again, where they've had experiences of pandemics many times. Um, so, you know, the Southeast Asian countries um, have done very well in terms of test, trace and isolate. Um, I know, for example, Kerala in India did very well. Uruguay uh, in South America has done well. You know, certain countries have done very well. There's no, there's no panacea. You know, there's nothing that's going to say this can prevent this happening. Um, but what it has been able to do in those countries, you know, Taiwan, South Korea, you know, Singapore, you know, very different kinds of countries 
Vietnam, Thailand, etc. What they can do is reduce the scale of the problem. And what, what it can do is buy time, you know, for other things, especially vaccinations to come along. And with it, of course, we come back to that idea of societal change, because it means checking in with a barcode everywhere you go. It means being traced and tracked and getting notifications and being told to stay at home and living your life on the edge of constantly being coming into contact with you're being you know busted by the app. And a lot of people don't want to live like that. Most countries don't have apps. You know, it, how it's done varies a lot. But the key thing is that um, people get test results back quickly. So it minimizes the time they wander around um, the community being infectious and that they have people who are skilled that they can talk to and work out where they might have got this from. So backward tracing, as well as forward tracing, who have I been in touch with that I might have infected? Um, so those are things that are really important. The isolation, um, many, many countries, including the countries I talked about, which are a lot poorer than our country, um, offer alternative accommodation. None of that's happened here. You know. If well, infected, some, and some go... countries actually weld people in. We've heard that that happened in China, um, a country that I think you have that you've praised their pandemic response. But to a lot of people in a liberal democracy, they think that that's going too far, even if it is effective. Let's look at New York City, if you'd like to take that as an example. Um, they provide if anybody is either um, tested positive, got symptoms or contact, they provide free local hotel accommodation, free meals, free Wi-Fi, uh, your children could go if, if needs be, free transport there and back, even pet care. You know, this is the sort of thing that you do if you're serious about separating those who are isolated from those who are not. Most people in this country haven't got the kind of housing where you can isolate yourself within a household. And therefore, the chances are that you'll infect other people in your household. Although then we've got law of un unintended consequences again, Professor Mickey, because we've got, there are lots of examples of outbreaks in those centres. We had one in Australia, a special COVID isolation centre became an outbreak centre and there were other examples around the world. So is, is there not a danger that these, these elaborate, more in, sort of invasive schemes end up producing their own dangers? When you say lots, there have been very few. And what's been really impressive, when they've occurred, They've been jumped on and they've been managed and dealt with. How do they do that? Through a really good test, trace and isolate system. And sometimes a regional, very short term, you know, week or two weeks lockdown, which they've done, for example, in the city of Melbourne before. Now, that means that when any outbreak occurs, which it will do, you know, it will like measles. We have to live with measles and we get measles outbreaks. What's important is there's a system in place that can immediately find out who's been infected, who might be infected, and sort the problem. And that's what's been happening. We don't have that in place to do that. So we're, there's so many things in the UK we could be doing um, that could help us get out of this pandemic in four weeks' time, which is what we'd all like to do. I mean, Melbourne, yeah, Melbourne's been sort of in and out of lockdowns um, all along, hasn't it? Uh, in response to these. Let me, let me ask you, um, Professor, the UK, in theory, is the dream scenario in that we have lots of vaccine, we have very little vaccine hesitancy, as you, 
you mentioned it's in the mid-90s. Well, so if you cross the channel, it's more like in the mid-50s. The chances of France getting to even the point we are now seem remote. But so we've got everything going for us. We're supposed to be ahead of everyone else. We've vaccinated 80% of adults. This was the you know, cavalry coming over the hill, as the prime minister described it. And it, I think a lot of people will just be quite flabbergasted that we've reached this point and it's still not enough. So if, if the UK can't start relaxing with all of those things in its favour, what's the rest of the world ever going to do? I don't think the UK, I mean, yes, it's, it's got the advantage of vaccines that the NHS has rolled out really quickly. I don't think the UK, anybody would hold the UK up as an, a great example of pandemic response in this pandemic. I think it's been actually one of the least good um, for all the reasons I've talked about. Um, if if we hadn't had the Delta variant becoming the dominant variant as it has, you know, if we'd had better border controls and not imported and seeded it in the way we had, we might have been all right. We might have been out of this. And it is really frustrating for everybody to know that, you know, had we done things differently, we could be in a very different place. We should have been in a very different place. And it is frustrating. Let me end, if I may, by asking a little bit about the, the nexus of politics and expertise, because that's what all of this comes from. One detail that I'm sure you're fed up with by now, but every um, you know, Daily Mail article and other thing leads with, with huge excitement, is that you were or remain a member of the Communist Party. Is that true? Are you a communist? Um, my politics are not anything to do with my scientific advice. And um, I've never discussed my politics um, with uh, people like yourself. So nor am I going to now. Um, the important thing is that when one gives scientific advice, one does so uh, using the expertise one has, not going beyond the expertise, being transparent about um, what expertise you provide. And I think that um, the kind of articles you referred to um, are a really disturbing kind of uh, McCarthyite witch hunting, which I don't think should have any place in a liberal tolerant society. Uh, fair enough. So if, if we make it a more general observation, then do you, do you see in the throes of this conversation, do you see any correlation between those experts that are more comfortable with larger collectivist state-led interventions and a kind of left of centre politics and a more laissez-faire, small government sort of right of centre politics. Do you think inevitably those kind of ideas do end up creeping into policy ideas in the end? If you look at the uh, publications coming out from the behavioural group of SAGE, um, many, many of them talk about the problems of inequality in our society and the um, dangers of inequalities, the fact that the pandemic itself and the response have increased those inequalities and the need to reduce inequalities. And um, there's a large group on, um, on, we call it SPIB, on the behavioural science uh, group. And um, we never talk about each other's politics. Uh, I assume there's a, a very broad range, but everybody's unanimous about wanting a more equal society. And in order to get 
um, a fairer and more just uh, society, it does require the government that's been elected to um, have policies that reduce rather than increase inequalities. I mean, and I just to, to be clear, I wasn't trying to embarrass you or make it a, a personal point. It is, it's just, we're in a strange world where politics and science have got very close all of a sudden. And I, I, I guess I wonder, would, do you regret that? Do you wish that think, things were I think more? There is a, I think there's a, uh, there is a sort of ideological difference, I suppose, um, with public health science um, taking a more population-wide view of things. How do we deal with this across the population? How do we deal with this as a society? How do we make things less unequal and fairer? Um Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. And that is a different kind of emphasis coming from public health, population health science, to... Um, what I don't see a lot of um, amongst my colleagues, maybe, but certainly the media and especially the papers that you mentioned um, would have much more emphasis on individual freedom, uh, you know, individual rights, um, rather than taking a sort of more collective population approach. But the reality is that this pandemic has shown everybody that no individual is an island. You know, we're very in interconnected. And, you know, not no one community or no, no one uh, sort of socioeconomic group within society can think that they can solve it for themselves and protect themselves because it's not like that. Um, and similarly, no country is an island. You know, all countries are interconnected. And one of the things we haven't talked about, which is incredibly important going forward, um, is getting the whole world vaccinated and how we do that and the steps that need to be taken. Um, it's very good to see um, you know, millions of vaccinations being donated. But the key thing is um, enabling countries to be able to afford vaccinations themselves um, by waiving the patent costs at this time crisis, which is what happened during the AIDS epidemic, and also supporting all countries to be able to develop the expertise and infrastructure to not all countries can be, but more countries 
um, to develop vaccines because we can't put up a border around us forever. Um, you know, it's just not realistic. We're an interconnected um, global uh, society. And so, you know, we can only solve this problem across society and indeed across the world. Professor Susan Mickey, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. It's been good to talk to you. That was Professor Susan Mickey of University College London, one of the more influential voices advising the government here in the UK on COVID policy. Really fascinating to get her view there on the dovetailing of ideology and science and how we are or are not going to change our society going forward. Thanks to her and thanks for watching. This was Lockdown TV.